This is Bishop Michael Curry, and you're listening to The Way of Love. Welcome to The Way of Love podcast with Bishop Michael Curry, a podcast from the Episcopal Church about following Jesus and changing the world. I'm your host, Sandy Millian. We have a great episode for you today, an episode so relevant to me as a Black and Christian young adult that highlights the questions and concerns my generation has been wrestling with for a while. In this episode, Bishop Curry talks to Teddy Reeves, the Assistant Curator of Religion at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. I think the church is burning. It's like a burning building. And I think what we've been trying to do is pour water on it and find ways to knock out these fires. Um, But my question always is, if it's burning and we know it's going to burn, What do we recreate out of the ashes? Reeves' extensive work with God Talk, a Black Millennials and Faith Conversation series, give him particular insight into concerning and hopeful trends for the future of faith and Christianity in the United States. The two of them discuss the importance of sharing stories, hopes, joys, and concerns with each other, noting that earnestly listening to one another is the best way to move congregations and individuals forward. Hello, Teddy, and welcome to The Way of Love. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Bishop. Well, we're talking actually on uh, the 18th of March, um, and uh, we're in the midst of the coronavirus and all that's going on. And so tell us a little bit about where you are and how you're doing where you are. Yeah, we are, my wife and I are in, are in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, we are hanging in there, I think, like everyone else, trying to um, adhere to the rules and the regulations put forth. Um, so quarantining in the house, um, I do go out for a little walk in the morning just to, to keep my sanity. But other than that, we're hanging in there. No complaints. How about yourself? Well, I'm doing the same thing, only in Raleigh, North Carolina, at home just kind of in my little office studio that I set up and and they sent me a mic so I could talk with you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you for doing this. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Teddy, Teddy tell us a little bit about yourself and about what you're doing now. A little yes. bit about you. So I was raised in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, not that far from you in Raleigh. Um, and, uh, St. Stephen's Missionary Baptist Church. Um, Uh as I often say, I was, uh, thrust upon that church. Um, I was a third generation, uh, raised in that church. Uh And, um, uh, like I said, grew up in Winston, did all my, uh, formative training. Um, I went to Hampton University undergrad, um, went to Princeton Seminary for my MDiv, um, kind of been all over the place. Bishop have worked um, as a pastor at a church in New York City as executive pastor. Uh, worked as a youth pastor in another church in Trenton, New Jersey, and uh, been a school teacher and fundraiser, and and have made my way uh, to where I am now, um, mm. where I currently serve as the assistant curator of religion at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington D.C. So it's been a bit of a journey. Um, mm-hmm. In my few short years, I've been on this side of Zion, but it's been uh, a journey worth a journey worth going. I hear you. Now, I've got before we get to what you're doing now and all the work and a lot of the ministry that you're doing, um, I've got to take you back to Winston Salem because yeah. I remember St. Stephen's Missionary Baptist Church from my days serving in Winston Salem back in the 1970s. Wow. Yeah, I know yes. where you come from. Wow. Look, that. That is home. I mean, I those formative years, I tell people all the time, um, growing up in, in Winston-Salem, but in more, more specifically growing up in St. Stephen's, um, when I was coming up, I, you know, I was exposed to it all. I was exposed to women in ministry um, as a child. Uh-huh. Um, I was exposed um, to, you know, this Baptocostal field. I was exposed yes. to... Um, Great preaching, great singing, mm-hmm. um, and it really, it really informed my theological understanding and a great theological base. Um, mm-hmm. And so, as you couldn't have told me growing up there that I would end up 
going into ministry myself um, that, you know, a lot of hurdles that I found that many of my colleagues and still today that some people are starting trying to get through and, and fight through and wrestle with, um, mm-hmm. I was, you know, they were open doors for me um, at, <laughs> at St. Stephen's and to allow me to wrestle with. So, yeah, that is home. Um, I, J.R. Samuels was the pastor when, uh, when I grew up there. And so, mm-hmm. oh, I have so such fond memories of it. I am almost sure. I, I'm not absolutely sure, but I I believe I remember. I can't remember if it was um, Reverend J.R. Samuels or his predecessor, but I remember uh, the pastor from St. Stephen's as being a, a positive and progressive voice in the 1970s. And it may be Reverend, um, Reverend Samuels. I'm not sure, but I just remember. That's why that church stands out for me. I used to go to the Ecumenical or Interfaith Ministerial Alliance. Um, and at that time, it was called the Baptist Ministers Conference and Associates. And mm. so the Presbyterian guy and the Roman Catholic guy and and I, and I'm trying to think who else, and the Pentecostal, Pentecostal Holiness, we were all associates at that time. Now it's just the Ministers of Conference. Mm. But you come from a, a great tradition. Yeah, all right. I, I, I am thankful every day for the road I've traveled, um, even in that those formative years. Um, now, I really realized, I guess, once I was in seminary that um, that was not everyone's experience. So I, no. I realized how much of a treat that was. Well, that church stood out even in the 1970s. I remember mm. that. I wow. remember that. Well, let me tell you, so you went on to Princeton Seminary, Princeton Theological yeah. Seminary. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that experience. What was that like? Yeah. So it's funny that um, I wanted to be a news anchor. And so um, from third grade on, I was planning to be a news anchor. I left undergrad. I went to teach high school for two years. And Uh um, the goal was to get back to journalism. Um, And so I can remember vividly my call, um, which would get me to Princeton Seminary. I was standing at the board of my 10th grade class. Uh, I was teaching Great Gatsby um, and I was an English teacher. And um, I heard a voice um, that I had been familiar with, but I heard it so audibly that said, go to seminary. Uh, At this point, I was looking at leaving teaching to go get a master's in journalism. Um, And I heard that voice clear as they say, go to seminary. And I said, seminary? why would I go to seminary? I don't, I'm not a minister. Um, so I kept ignoring, I'm teaching, literally writing on my board, um, teaching, and I hear the voice again say, go to seminary. Mm-hmm. So I begin to, to respond and I'm thinking I'm responding, um, but I'm responding out loud. Um, and my students were are like, Mr. Reeves, what are you talking about seminary? And I said, well, you know, class canceled. It's a free day. I let the, the kids just kind of do what they wanted to do. And I sat down at my computer um, and I began to look up seminaries. Um, it had never crossed my mind. It had never been something um, that I even had a hint of. And so um, after visiting um, PTS and, and felt a sense of, of home and peace in my visit and being there. Uh-huh. Um, I just applied and got in and, and went in the fall of 2010. Uh, it was an amazing experience. Um, through the friendships I made, it was a great grounding for me theologically uh, to begin to wrestle with some of my own baggage that I brought. Um, though mm-hmm. I realized I was I had more of a progressive upbringing, I still had some baggage um, and some theological baggage and to really wrestle through that and wrestle with that. Um, It was not without its own issues, right? It's a 200 year old white institution. And so that came with its own problems um, of wrestling through that. Um, But the friendships and the education bar none was, was amazing. And so I, I walked away uh, fully equipped um, and, and really ready to, to walk in what, um, God was calling me to do. Now, let me, I'm going to move you quickly to, to where you are now, and then we're going to talk about what you're doing now. But yeah. you're now assistant curator of religion at Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. That's a mouthful. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's a major position. Tell us what you do. It's an amazing position to really um, explore religion and do ministry in a very different way. Um, So the Center for 
the Center for the Study of African American Religious Life, which is housed within the museum, um, mm-hmm. was generously supported and founded by a grant from the Lilly Endowment um, to start a center to do the work around African American religion and to do it um, pluralistically, to do it in the totality of the experience. And so um, coming on board to the museum in 2017, um, my responsibility and my job um, really has been to assist in collecting religious artifacts, uh, research, publications, uh, community and faith-based outreach, uh, collecting artifacts, doing oral histories, and also producing uh, public programs that talk about the unique um, ways in which African Americans uh, have engaged with religion, um, have Mm -hmm. um, practiced religion. And so we do it very broadly. So from Christianity to Buddhism to Islam, to Judaism, to African uh, traditional religious practices, to um, non-belief systems, humanism, atheism. So we really span the gamut on how we talk about religion and African-Americans' participation in religion. Um, Mm -hmm. So it has been an amazing opportunity. um, And uh, I've been doing it for three years now. Time is going by fast. Wow. What are some of the offerings? Like if, you know, I'm Jane or Joe Doe, and I'm wondering, well, gosh, that sounds kind of highfalutin. What can that do for me? Yeah. So we, for every, you know, it, it's, it is a space um, where folks can come in and talk about their experiences. So, um, for instance, we do oral histories. We have a Black Religious Pluralism Project where we go around and talk to um, religious leaders, practitioners, um, that are walking and operating in faith to talk about their journeys, to talk about their religious experiences. Uh-huh. We try to capture those things on tape. Um, we do workshops with local houses of worship um, uh-huh. and spiritual centers to talk about um, how to preserve their own history. Um, oftentimes, uh, when we talk about, especially Black churches and, and smaller uh-huh. Black churches, sometimes that history dies with the church clerk. Yeah, or the yeah. whoever is, is collecting. So how do we teach local houses of worship how to begin to preserve their history? Um, something as small as uh, funeral programs. Um, yeah. It's one thing I tell churches all the time, and my grandmother still collects them herself, um, that it's the one time, <laughs> it's the one time for certain people that we will ever have a full biography of their life. Um, if they did not, you know, go do something that required a bio. This is the one time that we have a full bio with descendants and parents' names. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how to preserve that digitally, um, not just keeping them, but scanning them and creating, putting them in the cloud. It's also the one time that we know who actually worked and tilled that land and that soil in that specific house of worship. Right. Um, and so it's, it's preserving that. Um, it's And also artifacts. So, you know, we were... We've kind of gone over the gamut and traveling to different communities trying to um, preserve the stories um, and 3D material culture and objects um, from these communities to preserve at the museum. So um, we tell people we have a little bit for everyone and also our public programs that are always open, whether it's conferences, symposiums, or uh, we're in the midst of our multi-city conversation series, God Talk, um, which is another way that the public's able to engage with the work that we're doing. Now tell me, how do you spell God in God Talk? We spell it with the lowercase g. At, so lowercase g, capital O, D, and everything else is capitalized. Um, tell it's me a what question that means. we. <laughs> it's a question we get all the time um, uh-huh. when in, in doing the program. We intentionally lowercase the g again to decentralize um, certain faith traditions. Um, and uh-huh. to allow everyone to come to the table in the conversation. Um, so we're trying through these conversations to really transgress traditional bounds of what people think of religion, especially Black folks, and, and how Black uh-huh. religion is often interpreted. So we put that lowercase g there, which unsettles certain people, um, and okay. it, it brings so many questions. Um, but it's essentially uh-huh. just to allow everyone to feel comfortable at the table. Well, you know, and when I saw it, I was wondering what it was. And now hearing you say that, it just reminds me of Philippians chapter two, that that great hymn that that the great God Almighty humbled himself to come yeah. among us. And yeah. that's what you're doing. God will humble himself to bring us all. Yeah. That's what you're doing. That, that is it. 
That's beautiful, man. All right, now I got to ask you. Now we're sort of in the middle or at the the painful beginning of of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and I was on a conversation this morning with a number of Episcopal bishops, and one of them said, "This may be a moment when we in the church are no longer simply tolerating or." Um, hoping for more millennials in our midst. It may be when they help us to learn how to worship and build community when we can't physically be together. I completely agree, Bishop. <laughs> Tell completely. me more about millennials and faith. Yeah. So through our God Talk conversation, uh, it's the, the full title is God Talk, a Black Millennials and Faith Conversation Series. Uh-huh. Um, we're really seeking, and it's a it's in conjunction in a partnership we created with the Pew Research Center, really to take Pew's quantitative data and give qualitative voices to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really realizing with their 2014 Religious Landscape Survey that Millennials in general are disengaging from organized religion. Um, And what we were really trying to do is figure out what was going on with black millennials. Uh, Mm -hmm. And while they're disengaging at a slower rate than their white counterparts, they're disengaging nonetheless. And so um, through these multi-city conversations, we really begin to to, to bring millennials, 16 millennials um, on two panels in one night, um, really, and they run the gamut professionally, actors, entertainers, politicians, uh, athletes, theologians, to really talk about um, what's going on in Black religion um, and what's going on as it relates to millennials and um, some of the, the, the critiques and other issues that millennials are finding with traditional religious spaces. And so what we're finding, and, and to the statement that you just made from one of the bishops, is that millennials... Um, a lot of them, so you have different sects. You have a sect that is leaving traditional religious spaces and, and I'll use Christian spaces for the sake of our conversation, but they're not leaving God. They still believe in God. Um, okay. They still have this belief in a higher power. You have a sect of that community who's creating digital spaces, which I think uh, COVID-19 is really highlighting and, and putting a spotlight on those spaces um, and also showing some, some empty spaces. Um, and in, in some ways, the church's failure to really embrace technology. And mm-hmm. so for some of the millennials, they have created digital worship spaces, whether it's um, through Facebook, whether it's through Facebook groups, group chats, digital platforms. Um, you have, you know, Unfit Christian out there with Danielle Thomas. You have Red Lip uh-huh. Theology with Candace Bimbo. Uh, you have uh, Black Millennial Cafe uh, with Brianna Parker. You have a lot of different people creating these digital platforms to engage millennials who have just walked away from the traditional aspect of the building and, and everything that comes along with it, but seek God in new ways, in brunch mm-hmm. conversations, in um the God Talk conversations, these panel mm-hmm. discussions that are live streamed. That's another way that they're engaging with faith. Um, and so we have that. And then we have a sect who are just walking away from faith altogether. Um, yeah. And that is something um, that, um, especially for Black communities, something can be very um, unique and different, yeah. um, that you have a, po- a population of, and we've talked to some millennials who walked away from spaces and became atheists or became agnostic or began to embrace African spirituality um, and African religious traditions mm-hmm. um, as a way of realizing that there were um, some some issues that they could not resolve in those spaces, um, whether it was traumatic um, instances, whether it was some theological differences, um, that they were just having some problems. And so um, they just could not reconcile it. And they found that these other communities could answer their questions and could could offer safe passage and safe harbor for them. Um, And then you have a population that are choosing to stay and engage with the traditional church. Um, And whether they are pastors, whether they are on staff at local churches or just practitioners uh, or congregants um, that are staying, but they have questions. 
Um, and so they're finding ways to, to, to have those conversations, even if leadership doesn't allow them, um, whether it's in, in young adult groups or online. Um, but again, we're just finding that millennials have questions. Millennials um, are, are reconciling with some things um, from the church, um, theologies, practices, doctrines that aren't sitting well with this generation. And so they're really asking questions. And for some, they're saying, you know, I'm just going to leave. What do you think? You know, for example, I mean, there are millennial um, clergy and religious leaders like yourself. Are you all a sign of hope? Um, I think I think you can say that um, that there are some of us that are still um, working and really pushing the church um, and pushing uh, Christian spaces. Um, and other religious spaces, but again, for the sake of our conversation, really pushing Christian um, spaces and staying, and we're asking questions. So I think we can be a sign of hope. Um, mm-hmm. I am hesitant to put all the hope on a few of us, um, mm-hmm. because realizing that many of our millennial counterparts have had really traumatic experiences um, and have really strong um, well thought out opinions and questions that mm-hmm. some of our leadership is just not answering. Um, and so while, you know, for me growing up in the black church um, and being cultivated and raised and nurtured and having worked in them, um, I have a dedication to them um, sure. and a, a desire to see the best of them. Um, I think we saw the best of them in their time in the sixties. I think we saw the best of them mm-hmm. during uh, reconstruction and during enslavement. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's what millennials who are staying are doing is trying to see the best of the black church for the 21st century. Um, and so I think we have hope that, that it's there and it's possible. Um, but I, I'm leery to put all the hope on us. Um, Cause I also have seen many of our, my counterparts who've gotten tired um, and, and getting weary in their well-doing. What are some of the questions for black millennials? Yeah, some of the questions are, you know, how do we reconcile with the church's failure to wrestle with issues of gender and sexuality? Um, How do we wrestle with, um, especially around issues around black women, um, churches, Mm -hmm. uh, sexism and patriarchy and refusal refusal, um, to, and not all of them, but some of them refusal to embrace the full call of women in ministry. Um, The questions of you know, um, management, uh, pastoral management, management of the church and finances, um, the questions of, you know, we're seeing um, leaders not living up to what they feel they've been or they profess they've been called to, whether it's uh, clergy abuse scandals in the news, mm-hmm. whether it's um, infidelities, whether it's, um, you know, because of social mm-hmm. media and technology, we're being exposed to Um, Some would say the humanity of clergy persons um, at a higher rate. Um, And so those are questions. There's questions around um, intergenerational leadership transfer, um, that many of these spaces are still being controlled by boomers. um, And millennials are saying, you know, it's we we should have a chance at this. Um, So you want us to come to church, um, but you don't really want us to do the work. Um, you mm-hmm. want us to do the work that you've created versus allowing our ideas and um, our pulse to the community and to the group in which you're trying to attract to be valued. Um, there are questions around um, sustainability. Um, are these spaces sustainable for another hundred years? I mean, who, you know, millennials are asking questions who's going to c- keep this building going? Because, um, right, right. you know, COVID 19 is showing us that. Millennials are saying, you know, we've been trying to tell you for 10 years now to get technology because we don't feel, many of us, that, you know, you have to be in the church, in the physical building to have church. Mm -hmm. And so we're, you know, this pandemic is really heightening that question around where can church transpire? Where can the spirit of God dwell? Um, And millennials have been saying it can do it through technology, through brunch, through concerts at a festival. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they're having questions about sustainability of these buildings. Um, They have questions about tithes and offering um, that, you know, they don't feel that 10% of their income should go to the church when they have student loan debt. 
um, when they had, you know, they can't afford to buy a house, all of these different things. So those are just some of the questions um, that have been asked and wrestled with through our God Talk conversations um, that have been fruitful, um, have pushed, um, Mm -hmm. and, and some of them have been very uncomfortable, which I think that's where we learn best is in those tight, uncomfortable spaces. Mm. What are some of the most uncomfortable that you can talk about? I think the most uncomfortable has been the issues around LGBTQ. Um, and I will say it's been uncomfortable for some, um, because it's talking about people's humanity, um, and what people feel God has called them to and called them to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in our God talk conversations, we try to make sure that we show the totality of the religious experience, not just religious diversity, but diversity Mm -hmm. within traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we may have a, um, very progressive black Christian millennial or someone who will consider themselves more conservative. Um, and so that can lend itself to some heavy discourse around, uh, various issues and LGBTQ issues are one, um, again, women's roles in, in leadership is a, is a tight issue for a lot. Um, we just did a conversation, um, back in Texas and Dallas where we did, um, we sat around a dinner table and really talked about, it was an intergenerational conversation. All the generations that are presently living were, uh, reflected, uh, and really had those, that, that hard conversation around the role of women, because you had some people sitting at the table that didn't come from traditions where women are able to preach um, or able Mm -hmm. to lead. Or you have some folks, we had some, uh, a trans sister on the panel um, and some, you know, talking about how God still uses her uh, and how Mm -hmm. she was hurt by the church. Um, But you may have someone on the panel who doesn't agree with who she feels she is. And so um, what we, we try to lay the groundwork in the conversations to let people know is we're not trying to prove anyone right. Uh, we're talking about having dialogue amongst um, Black people um, yes. to have this intergenerational dialogue to move our faith communities forward um, in whatever mm-hmm. that looks like. And so it's th- those have been two of kind of those tight conversations um, that we've had. Take a moment and think of a time when you saw and felt God at work outside the walls of a church building. What was God showing you in that instant? How can you put that learning into practice today? Did you see any, when I say signs of hope, I don't mean that in a giddy sense, any any signs of a way forward? Yes, I think there are signs. Um, it is through, um, and, and I say this quite often on all the panels, I think that Black women are the future of Black religion, um, uh-huh. that Black women are going to be the way forward for us out of this. Um, because Black women are really leading the way in creating new waves and modems of being in community mm-hmm. and in religious community, um, mm-hmm. partly because their gifts weren't affirmed in the traditional spaces, so they went and created their own spaces. And so um, I do see those glimmers of hope um, for Christian communities and Black Christian communities. I see the way forward is um, technology. I think COVID-19, again, is pushing the Black church. I mean, we saw the discourse online of people really trying to figure out, you know, should you have worship? Should you not have worship? Mm -hmm. Um, And that conversation was heated. And it showed, um, for me, a lot of different things that have been present in our God Talk conversations. It showed um, the church's failure to really embrace technology um, and the fullness of technology. It showed Mm -hmm. our inability to really, um, this really, forced us to believe in the God that we preach to our congregants every Sunday, Mm -hmm. um, that this God will provide not only for the people, but will also provide for the church in this, in this lack of physical, um, of us physically going into those spaces. Um, and so it, for me, 
the hope is there that there is something going to reemerge. And I, I, I always use this, um, this analogy. I think the church um, is burning. It's like a burning building. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we've been trying to do is pour water on it and find ways to, 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 to knock out these fires. Uh-huh. Um, but my question always is, if it's burning and we know it's going to burn, this is a question for me for theological institutions. This is a question for me for uh, religious spaces, houses of worship. What do we recreate out of the ashes um, is yeah. what I'm more concerned about. And I think what our guide talk conversations are leading to, what are we going to create out of these ashes? Because uh, typically in a fire, something always is left. There may be an mm-hmm. old photo. There may be um, you know, some garments left. The foundation may still be there. Um, so I'm more concerned, and I think what millennials are doing is trying to recreate create some new things out of the ashes that were left, out of some of these mm-hmm. foundational belief systems, um, out of some of these things that were done that uh, we need to take forward. And, I, and so I'm having hope that new things are creating. All things are made new, right? So some mm-hmm. things are being pushed out, um, these digital spaces, these community meetups. Um, I, I think in many ways, we're going back to um, the first church um, and these yes. small groups. Yep. Uh, brunch conversations where is like house church. Um, That's right. They're just doing it over mimosas and um, waffles and chicken. Um, you know, like that. Th- this is what we're becoming. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm not fearful of it. Uh, and that could be my. Uh, my youthfulness speaking, but I'm not fearful of it. I'm excited about what's going to emerge out of these ashes. You know, I just I just think of uh, what Jesus said to the disciples at the Last Supper when mm-hmm. they kept asking him a lot of questions, and he said, there are many more things that I could tell you, but you can't handle them now. That's real. That is so real, Bishop. The Spirit will lead you into stuff. I think you are speaking prophecy. Hmm. And, you know, the reality is, again, I mean, we're in the middle of this COVID-19. We don't know how that's going to unfold. And we don't know um, how we are going to be changed and how the very landscape of reality is going to be changed. But it's going to be changed. It's yes. not. We're not going to just go back to what we were a month ago. This is going to change everything. Yeah. And I suspect that Bishop this morning may have been on to something, something more profound than we realize. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do have a question for you. Um, what, what, do you what do you think is the um, reason that millennials are disengaging as someone who oversees uh, a denomination um, that... Um, maybe wrestling as many of them are wrestling mm-hmm. with um, the decline. What are, what are you mm-hmm. seeing and what are you hearing? Oh. I, you know, many of the same things that, that you've been describing, um, I think are true. Um, you know, even in a church like the Episcopal church or the Presbyterians or anybody else, um, you know, and I grew up in the Episcopal church, but I grew up in the black Episcopal church in the black mm-hmm. community. So that, that that was the world. So I, I'm a child of of the historic black church, as well as the mainline Episcopal church. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've seen both of those traditions. Um, if you create a broad rubric, um, having thrived at one time. Um, and and by thrive, I don't mean in terms of growth and expansion and money. I mean in terms of impact on the wider society. I mean, I grew up in this, I grew up in the 1960s in Mm -hmm. church, in a church involved in civil rights. (laughs) That's where I grew up. I saw the church at its best. Now, it it wasn't always easy (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it wasn't always pretty, but I saw the church actually believing following Jesus changes personal lives and can change the social life can change the society. I saw that. I've seen it at its best. But now I've seen the church um, to some extent aging 
and struggling not to live off the laurels of the past. And what has happened, I think, is that we have strayed away, like you said, intimated earlier, from the very core of why we exist in the first place. And my guess is millennials, and I don't know what the generation is behind the millennials. What is it, Z? Yes. I have a feeling that they look at us and say, well, so you all are into keeping up buildings? You all are... That's you're all are into um, building big churches and um, being mega, and that, so that's what this is about. And 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 in one sense, that has strayed away from the core of the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth, of that brother who created a movement around him, a movement based on his teachings and his life and created a community of people who are willing to sacrifice their very lives for the cause and the way of love, unselfish love. That cause somehow gets overcome by a lot of the institutional accoutrements that get added to the church, sometimes symbolized by buildings, sometimes symbolized by traditions, but they're always add-ons. Mm. And I think when you talk about house church, church over coffee, church online, church in a variety of ways, community, I think that's a call to us to go back to our earliest roots of the son of man who had no place to lay his head. Mm. And the closer we get to him and to that, which is closer to the living God for real, then I think faith transcends age and generation. And where human community begins to blossom because of that, then it's not about whether you're a millennial or a boomer. Because like it says in the Acts of the Apostles, they followed this Jesus and there was not a needy person among them. Mm. They followed this Jesus and it didn't matter whether you were circumcised or uncircumcised. You had your place at this table. They yeah. followed this Jesus. And even somebody who at one point was pretty traditionalist, like Paul of Tarsus, said all who are baptized into Christ to put on Christ, and there is no slave or female, Jew or Gentile, for all are one in Christ. That was before the French Revolution of equality, um, of brotherhood, equality. Um, that, that was before um, the Declaration of Independence. That was before the Gettysburg Address. That was before Dr. King articulated a dream. That was before um, the Declaration of Human Rights in the United Nations. Before that, the first people who dared to follow Jesus, who didn't have any church buildings, actually created a profoundly egalitarian community following the way of Jesus. The closer we get to that, then this faith itself um, will commend itself. Mm. And the further we are from that, we are no longer commendable. And I think this may be the first generation to actually say the emperor has no clothes because we're not clothed in Christ and his love. And when we put on those clothes, well, like the old honk says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. The closer we get to him, we'll get closer to each other. I don't know if I really answered your question, but that oh, Bishop, you answered it. You got me. You, you preached the whole word. <laughs> that was that was powerful. Um, yeah. So what do you think emerges out of these religious spaces as this decline happens? And we're seeing in a lot of urban spaces, especially mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that many of these, um, the buildings are closing because the churches can't keep them up or they're selling them. Right. Um, how do we reimagine or repurpose those spaces for future generations? 
Now that's, oh, I like that. And I want you to help me. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? That's a good, <laughs> you know, I, what do you think? You know, I don't, so I think there's many ways we can repurpose. I am, yeah. that is a worry of mine um, as we go around with these conversations. And I realize that many of these churches are closing um, that in many instances, it's the only thing Black people own in the community. Yes. As gentrification is happening all throughout this country, that is the last thing that's often owned. And yeah. so um, my thought is, how does the church remain? I mean, there's two parts. How do you remain there to service a community that may no longer look like you? Mm-hmm. And yes. then two, how do you um, do the work of repurposing um, you really got to really shift and rethink of how we do community um, yes. because that, that looks very different in a gentrified community. Um, so I'm, I, I think about, you know, community centers as many yes. uh, local local um, cities are closing down certain community centers in certain neighborhoods mm-hmm. um, that these churches can become community centers. Yes. Uh, they could become after school programs. They could mm-hmm. become uh, charter schools. They could mm-hmm. become places for dance and ballet and, and, mm-hmm. and the arts. Um, yeah. I also think that they could be houses uh, for entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, that these spaces could turn into housing for creatives and entrepreneurs and incubators and think tank spaces. Mm-hmm. And in that, they can still they still keep their sacredness, right? right? Because then we're saying that God moves throughout all of these mediums um, mm-hmm. to impact the world. So to me, there's still a sacredness there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that, you know, in that, if the, the church says, you know, we have 20 members now, we can create this space to be that, the church still can meet there. Right. Um, but I don't think our churches no longer have the luxury um, nor time to just be open once a week, maybe twice. Right. Um, that this, to me, that's that's a model um, of a look of a way forward. I think you're absolutely right. You know what, and you know what you said, but what I heard you saying in terms of how do you do that? How do you get to that point? One of the ways you do it is by asking yourself the question, what is it? Why did God put us here? Mm. Why are we here? What's our core reason for being? And what does this community as it is now what is the calling to be a presence in this community now that's bigger than our self-interest? And that out of that or those kinds of questions could emerge creative possibilities that wouldn't even have been thought of before or considered before. We can't afford to keep up this whole building, but you know what? Maybe we don't need this whole building for what our purpose is. Our purpose is to worship God, to be a place of formation and faith for, for, for Christians and for, for other folks, but it's also to serve this community. And if, if this building, how can this building serve God in this community? Mm-hmm. Not us, God. It's a church to dare to ask, Lord, what would you have us do? Not what we want to do. This may well be for the church, a Garden of Gethsemane moment. Wow. Lord, I don't want to give give up my building, Jesus in the garden. Lord, I don't want to die. Who wants to die? Lord, I, I don't I don't want I don't want to let Judas kiss me and soldiers take me away and probably try me unjustly and then then torture me and then um, crucify me and let me bleed to death in front of my mama. Who in the world in their right mind would want to do? I don't want to do that. Um, I, I, I wanted to. I don't want this building where where mama was buried from and grandma used to have a pew. And you see, I, I don't want to die because this does involve a death. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, "Not my will, but thine be done." And he did it because he's just showing us, if you love others, show them how love works. That it's unselfish mm-hmm. and sacrificial. Show them, Jesus. 
And it may be that for us in the church, we have to decide, is it going to be my will? Let this cup pass from me or thy will be done. Any questions that get us there are worth asking and wrestling with. And I believe he died on Friday and rose from the dead, transformed and new on Sunday. And if we believe that, then the death of the way we have been institutionally, if it's done faithfully, somehow will lead to God raising up something new. And that's God's work. And we say we're about our father's business. So let's do it. That's what I heard you saying. That's it. That That's, Brother, that's exactly. Mm. Oh, Teddy, you have got the Episcopal Church listening to you. Think for a moment. And can you give us a word that we need to hear? A word that will help to steady us along the way? I guess if I had a word or have a word that I could give to the Episcopal Church um, in light of everything that's going on um, in the world um, and in faith from my, pers- my work that I'm doing is to be open to the new things that God is doing. Um, and that in that to lean in to um, the uncertainty, to lean into the unfamiliarity, um, to lean into um, the discomfort, um, to lean into the, I don't understand, I don't get it, uh, to lean into the, that's not how we always did it, um, to lean into all of that. Um, and I think you really said it best, to really believe that God is doing a new thing. Um, and to trust the millennials that you have in your congregations laboring um, to carry that new thing uh, to fruition, to really be the hands and feet of Christ and to, to, to do this new thing. I think um, we have to be okay that the millennials that are still in our faith communities um, that they have been trained, that they know, you know, they know what to do and that they're able to lead. And they're able to take this new thing that God is doing mm-hmm. and, and draw back some that are left, mm-hmm. that have left, but also support the work of those who may be outside of the bounds mm-hmm. of what we consider church. Um, and I think that millennials are up for the task and Gen Z, this new generation that's, uh-huh. you know, 22, 23, that we are able to hold it. We're able to carry that water um, and we're able to build something new. And so lean into that, um, trust that, um, work alongside us in it. Um, and I mm. think that that's something um, that we can forget oftentimes. And it, it's it's a misnomer, I think, oftentimes that people believe that millennials just want to do away with older generations. Um, mm. But I, 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 that's not what we're finding. We're finding that millennials are open to intergenerational dialogue. They're open to intergenerational working. What they're not open for is um, previous generations' failure to work with them versus directing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I always tell people millennials are grown. The oldest group of millennials will be 40 next year. Right. Uh, they have bills, they have children, they're leading corporations. Um, they are, you know, some of some, their bosses, they're doing all these great things. Mm-hmm. And so to really lean into that, um, and believe that this new thing God is doing, um, that it was a new thing when Christ came and, and, and was, uh, flipping tables and and calling the kingdom of God and and, and challenging people mm. um, yes. that millennials are doing the same thing yeah. um, and they're they're challenging um, and pushing against the empire they're pushing against you know their their own our own um, Caesar of the day yes um, our own uh, Pharisees our own Sadducees we're pushing against that mm-hmm. um, because we hear the voice of God saying I'm doing a new thing. Uh, we mm. hear that frequency. 
um, especially those of us that are still plowing away in these vineyards and these local churches, and even those of, who created new spaces, we hear that that faint whisper um, of God saying, "I knew you and I called you yes. um, for this, for this work, for this generation, and to take my message forward." And so that would be, I think, what I leave for the Episcopal Church. Ooh, brother, I hear St. Stephen's Missionary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina from the 1970s when that church was a voice of positive, progressive hope. And the spirit was speaking then and is now speaking through you. Mm. Teddy Reeves, thank you, brother. Thank you so much, Bishop Curry. I have thoroughly enjoyed this time with you. Oh, and I with you. And to all who are listening, God love you and you keep the faith. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of The Way of Love with Bishop Michael Curry. I am so happy that we were able to have this conversation with Teddy Reeves, and I hope it inspires us all to continue to work together, embrace all the new and beautiful things God is doing, and to trust that God is at work with the younger generations laboring and leading our communities. If you'd like to learn more about Teddy Reeves, visit teddyreeves.com. That is T-E-D-D-Y R-R-E-E-V-E-S.com. There, you can find links to his work and speaking schedule. To know more about how you can begin the work of engaging in dialogue and new expressions of the church, check out our show notes for more resources related to the Becoming Beloved Community story sharing campaign, this week's release of Embracing Evangelism, and more. As always, you can learn more about Bishop Curry and the Way of Love including how to create your own personal rule of life at episcopalchurch.org. Special thanks this week to Teddy Reeves, Bishop Curry, Jerusalem Greer, Chris Sikama, Jeremy Tackett, and Scott Van Pletzenrand. I'm Sandy Millien, and I'll see you next time on The Way of Love. The way of Jesus is the way of love, and the way of love can change the world. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.